Hypnotherapeuts Hermes Podcast. Welcome to the world of the Western esoteric tradition. Hello, friends and listeners. Welcome to this new episode of the Thoughts Hermes podcast. Today is Sunday, January 26, 2020. My name is Rudolf and I am your host. This is already episode number four of our season four, which started on the first days of the new decade. And now we are already on the end of that first month of the year. Time really flies. I'm speaking to you, as always, from lovely Austria, from a small town close to its capital, Vienna. What you will hear today is again an Ex Libris episode. I have already produced four of these Ex Libris episodes in which each time we present four books and sometimes also events like conferences. Today it will be oriented entirely towards books again. But as opposed to earlier Ex Libris, it is now an integrated part of our season and not like some special episode as earlier. So from time to time, maybe once a month or so, you will get a show like this. And when I look at the reactions and download figures of the other Ex Libris shows, I can see that you like it. What I will be presenting to you, I will tell you in a minute. But first, for those who are not Yet, regulars of this podcast, let me tell you a few practical issues. You can find the Thought Hermes podcast on our website, www.thoughthermes.com. That is T-H-O-T-H-E-R-M-E-S.com. And this is always where I would suggest you to go. Also to find the show notes with all the extra information, links, etc. that will help you to go on further from here. On the website, you can also leave me a voicemail or use our contact page to get in touch. But if you prefer, you can of course listen to us on all major podcast outlets, among which Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spreaker, iHeartRadio, Spotify and many others, as well as in the still audio-only version, also on YouTube. The choice is yours. And to give me feedback, which I always like to receive, you can also send us messages on Facebook or Twitter, if you prefer that, to the website. What I would also ask you to do is to push that little pay button down there or the Patreon button to support our show. 
If you go on Patreon or directly on the Patreon website, you will find us there. And already for $2 per episode at the max of three per month, so no more than $6 per month, you can become a real important supporter of this show. Thank you for your help. I appreciate. All clear. Well then, let's see what this episode has in it for you. Remember, all our Ex Libris episodes, but all episodes anyway, have chapters, which comes very handy if you want to jump for a special part of the show that interests you, or jump back to the beginning of a chapter without the need to start all over again from the beginning. If, well, if your podcast player supports chapters, of course, but nowadays most of them do. Before I start, one little remark. The Ex Libris editions do not review books. We present books. I only want to share with you books that I like. So much is being produced, printed and published, which is excellent. But why should I here tell you about books that I don't like or don't appreciate? So don't believe I just like any book, but I only present here those books. I select those I like. Okay, thank you. Here we go. In chapter one, I will present to you the first ever English edition of a text by famous and important Italian hermeticist Giuliano Cremerz. Never heard of him? Well, you are probably not alone, because as his work has not existed in English so far, the publication of his Hermetic Science of Transformation by Inner Traditions is a real treat. And I was helped in presenting this book by Professor Hans Thomas Hackel, who many of you I am sure know. So enjoy chapter one for that. Chapter 2 is again, like each time, consecrated to Greg's Joyce, the book that is chosen and presented to you by my friend, great podcaster and beautiful voice Greg Kaminsky. He will talk to you about a new English edition of the famous chemical wedding of Christian Rosenkreutz, presented by Michael Martin. With chapter 3, it is my colleague and friend Ursula, Ursula Cereny from Salzburg that returns on Thoth Hermes. Many of you have probably already enjoyed her interviews from the O Culture Conference in Berlin at the end of the December special episode to that respect. And if you haven't, you should go and listen. Ursula was also already twice here in an Ex Libris edition with me and presenting books to you. Today, she will talk to us about the great book, Holy Damon, by the wonderful Frater Acker. And Acker will be back in person also on the Thoth Hermes podcast in a month or so. So watch out for that exclusive interview then as well. Last chapter, chapter four, brings a 20-minute interview with a highly interesting guy, on a highly interesting book he wrote about a highly interesting topic. Recently, English publisher Louis Masonic have released Alistair Lee's English Illuminati, and Alistair is talking to us here today. And you will soon realize that when we talk about Illuminati here, 
we don't talk about any fake news or conspiracy theories, but what Illuminati really means, and about some astonishing discoveries Alistair made. So, plenty of things to discover, I think, a rich and interesting bunch of books. Before we start, though, you know that a piece of music will await you. You remember Frater F? Yes, he's the occultist from Sweden who produces, in my opinion, wonderful music, and we had him on Thoth Hermes already. An especially appealing piece of his is on this episode today called Thagirion. To me, a mix of wonderful sound landscapes with some almost death metal-like sounding background voices. Unique and fascinating. Thagirion, and after that we will immediately start with chapter 1.
Chapter 1 Do you know Giuliano Kremertz? Well, honestly, before I came across this book I'm going to talk to you about, I did not. And I may say I'm usually rather good in the field of Hermeticism. And this author and Hermeticist is European, Italian, so I should really have known him because he was a very important figure in the late 19th, early 20th century in this field. His real name is Ciro Formisano. He was born in 1861 near Naples, a philosopher and therapeutist. He was also the founder of the Scola Philosophica Hermetica Classica Italica. I think you get that even if you don't speak Latin. His teacher seems to have been Pasquale de Servis. He was linked to the tradition of the Pythagoreans, who had also taken the Osiris and Isis cults from ancient Egypt. Our Kremertz also traveled to Uruguay and possibly made contact with the shamanic cultures there. But it was Pasquale de Servis who initiated the young Ciro Formisano to the mysteries of the sacred science, recognizing in him the constituent characteristics of a master of Hermeticism, combined with a great humanitarian, tolerant and generous nature. One of his main writings has now been finally made available to the English-speaking audience by Inner Traditions. The Hermetic Science of Transformation, subtitled The Initiatic Path of Natural and Divine Magic, is a wonderful book by this publisher of a little over 200 pages, a classical primer for the serious magical aspirant. The main purpose of Hermetic Science is for Kremertz to allow the adept to concentrate on the natural and divine magic that will help to develop the latent powers innate in every human being. I have asked a real top-level specialist on the matter of Italian Hermeticism of that period to assist me in presenting you Kremertz and this book. Hans Thomas Hackel, he is also Austrian, born in 1947. He has extensively published on the matter of occultism, has written for dictionaries and journals. His book Eranos is a classic, Carl Gustav Jung and Mirsa Eliade are among his specialities. Dr. Hackel preferred to answer my questions in writing and I am therefore going to read to you now my questions and his answers to me. First of all, Professor Hackel wants to underline that although the interview is under his name, that he has checked his answers with Dr. Christian Guzzo, one of the main living experts on Giuliano Kremertz and a leading member of an important fraternity related to him. Here is my first question, Dr. Hackel. Giuliano Kremertz was member of the famous Ur group alongside Julius Evola. What was his role within that group and how would you define his relationship with Evola? Here comes the answer. Kremertz was never a member of the Ur group. 
It was instead Evola who tried to approach the Brotherhood of Miriam, founded by Giro Formisano alias Giuliano Kremerz, through the help of a Roman priest known as Father Oliva. He gave him some fragments of the preliminary operational document marked with the letter C. Evola had no intention of following the hard way of the mysteries of Isis, since he wanted to immediately get in touch with the occult Osiridian nucleus that represented the next step. However, the Roman philosopher never had the opportunity to access the secret inner doctrine of the Egyptian Osiridian order. But Evola definitely appreciated Kremers very much. My second question. The teacher of Kremerz was apparently Pasquale de Servis, an illustrious figure, Mason, Martinist, head of the traditional Egyptian rite. How much of this influence is, in your opinion, to be felt in Kremerz's teachings? And Dr. Hackel answers. I do not know of any document proving that Pasquale de Servis was a Martinist. He was known by the sacred name of Isar Benescur and was one of the most illustrious masters of the Osiridian order, author of numerous unpublished works of secret doctrine. De Servis lived in a small apartment owned by Kremert's mother. He had the opportunity to educate the little Chiro, transferring his teachings to him. When Chiro Formisano became an adult, Izar introduced him to the master of the Egyptian Grand Orient, the lawyer Justiniano Lebano, known by the hieronym of Cyritis Hus. He left the Formisano heir to numerous manuscripts, used by Kremers later for the elaboration of his very original Chaldean-Egyptian magical system. Dr. Hagel, can Kremers be put in the same line as typical traditionalists like René Gunon, for example? Where do you see his particularities and differences? How would you define a typical Kremerzian path? Dr. Hagel answers. Gunon was the founder of the current of integral tradition and many followers of his even deny that Evola also belongs to this current. Kremerz definitely was not a follower of Genon or Evola. It is important to understand that, unlike other contemporary mag magical scholars, Kremerz came from a 19th century magic school that had accumulated a very important doctrinal and ritual corpus, which included the first way of purification through contact with very ancient spirits and divinities and subsequently a path of internal alchemy for the actual realization of the state of a magical separando. Kremerz is a philosopher and a theurgist. What he writes derives from a personal practical experience into magic, as well as from a vast theoretical knowledge of the principles of Neapolitanian Hermeticism. 
It depends on the definition of esotericism, if you call Guénon an esotericist or a religious philosopher with esoteric undertones. He is definitely an important, learned and original intellectual, with a firm religionist outlook influencing many important people like Ebola, Schwann, etc. And for whom, Dr. Hackel, do you esteem his texts in his book are important? Are they only precious for the advanced student? What kind of knowledge and desire should the occult students have to get a maximum out of working with those texts and Kremert's teachings? Dr. Hackel answers. The published texts are interesting because they were made in the first years of the author's preaching. However, it would be necessary to carry out the translations of important works such as La Porta Hermetica and Ideologi sul Hermetismo, which I would translate Dialogues on Hermeticism and the Hermetic Portal. An important work of English translation of the work of Kremerz was undertaken by Dr. Christian Guzzo, who recently published the English translations of Angels and Demons of Love and Tarot from a philosophical point of view. My last question to Dr. Hackler. The Scola Philosophica Hermetica Classica Italica and also the Fratellanza Magica di Miriam are two groups founded by Kremers and following his teachings that still exist today in Italy. What is their role and how important are they today in the Italian and European occult circles? And Dr. Hackel answers. First of all, it must be said that the Scola Philosophica Hermetica Classica Italica and the Brotherhood of Miriam represent different denominations to indicate the same initiatory reality. In Italy, there are many initiatory realities that refer to the Kremers teachings, but the thought of this 20th century master is still poorly known in Europe. It is to be hoped that through the translation of his works, Kremers can become a reference point for students of high esotericism in Europe and the US. Thank you so much, Dr. Hackel, for your deep insight of knowledge. I find this very exciting. I hope that you, my audience, also could appreciate that. And his works and his words even contain a little message to inner traditions. Go ahead with the translation of Kremers. There are still gems to be found that would be of great interest and help to us, the practitioners. But it is also clear that this edition is a major first step and we should all be grateful that it was finally published in English. And this little error in the introduction to the text that Kremers was member of the Ur group, which in fact he was not, well, we can overlook that. So go and grab a copy of this book. All links will be on the website on the episode show notes. Giuliano Kremertz, The Hermetic Science of Transformation, published by Inner Traditions. A wonderful book.
Chapter 2 Greg's Choice Welcome to Greg's Choice. I'm Greg Kaminsky of occultofpersonality.net and chamberofreflection.com. Today I'm reviewing The Chemical Wedding of Christian Rosenkreutz, the Ezekiel Foxcroft translation, revised, and with two new essays by Michael Martin. And this is published by Angelico Press. And it just, I uh, believe, recently came out, uh, 2019. Uh, the Chemical Wedding, you know, as a Rosicrucian story, highly symbolic. Um, and so this translation is nice, not necessarily essential in my opinion. What makes this book worth your time and consideration are these essays by Michael Martin, who I've come to understand has a very insightful perspective on Rosicrucianism. I'd like to read from the first essay Martin has included in the book. It's the introduction entitled, So Unlooked For an Adventure. Martin writes, Like the manifestos published anonymously, Johann Valentin André later claimed paternity for the chemical wedding in his vita, calling the work a ludibrium. Ludibrium is translated by some commentators as joke or fantasy which are serviceable choices, but perhaps a more accurate translation and one closer to the spirit of the tale is game. The chemical wedding, like a perspective box, a camera obscura, or puzzle book, is indeed like a game, playful, inventive, insightful, offering delight alongside instruction. And like all games, it is more fun when one plays along. The story is full of jokes, puzzles, satires, and red herrings, mostly at the expense of academic pride and the pretensions of occultists. Adding to the humor of the chemical wedding, most of the commentary written over the last 500 years in hopes of probing its secrets has been exactly the sort Andre was pranking in the first place which is why he described the book's reception as a game which was evaluated and foolishly explicated with subtle ingenuity and which proves the stupidity of the curious. Indeed, some people don't know a good joke when it's played on them. It is my contention that the playful construction of the chemical wedding is evidence of Andre's intention to apply physic to the soul of the reader, the text, that is, serves as what Stanley Fish, one of the great readers of 17th century literature before he turned to law and the life of a public intellectual, has called 
a self-consuming artifact, which, as he ex further explains, signifies most successfully when it fails, when it points away from itself to something its forms cannot capture. If this is not anti-art, it is surely anti-art for art's sake, because it is concerned less with the making of better poems than with the making of better persons. As a self-consuming artifact, the chemical wedding, reveling in the high comedy of intellectual hubris, revealing its own mysteries despite its occult paraphernalia, and ever again reminding the reader to not rely on learning or the discovery of the secrets of nature as surrogates for salvation, tries to enact a transformation on the soul of the reader by destabilizing the reader's preconceptions of what a chemical wedding is, or for that matter, what a Rosicrucian is. The chemical wedding succeeds when it fails. The sham lost ending certainly supports this supposition, because if it had succeeded as an occult text, it would have surely failed as physic for the soul. Herein lies the brilliance of André's ludibrium. That so many have missed what is ob so obvious only proves his point the more. And I think this is a really brilliant analysis of the chemical wedding and what it's really pointing to. And I think it's extraordinary because this is the exact same sort of dichotomy I find in, for instance, the work of Pico della Mirandola in his uh, Apologia and the excerpt later entitled On the Dignity of Man, where he talks about this sort of uh, union with the divine as the highest purpose you know, walking with the angels and surpassing them as opposed to what he called demonic magic. Sort of the manipulation of worldly circumstances. And so I think it's fascinating the way that this um, is explained here by Martin in his introduction. And he goes further and he's stating that this willed ignorance, this intransigent and unrepentant misreading of a text is something Umberto Eco in Foucault's Pendulum recognizes in some of the readers, certainly the enthusiastic among them, of allegedly occult texts. In Eco's tale, three ragtag book publishers, in order to increase sales and revenues, decide to invent a secret society and its literature, as Andre does in The Chemical Wedding, which the world's occult adepts immediately accept as of authentic and esoteric pedigree. Foucault's pendulum adopts all the epigraphical accoutrement of occult texts, quotes from the Kabbalah in Hebrew and untranslated, citations from the vast literature of esoteric adeptism, and so forth. But what this book really amounts to is a 560-page setup of a joke. Once the publishing ruse is taken seriously by the adepts, things get seriously out of hand, to the point where one of the publishers, Jacopo Belbo, finds himself on the verge of being made a human sacrifice at the hands of the occult brotherhood he and his associates invented, and which the adepts assume they have been initiated into long since. 
At the point of execution, he utters the book's punchline, Magavte Lanata, a Piedmontese expression meaning take out the cork. As Echo's narrator explains earlier in the text, you say it to one who is full of himself, the idea being that what causes him to swell and strut is the pressure of the cork in his behind. Remove it and psh, he returns to the human condition. Now, in The Chemical Wedding, Andre essentially tells the same joke, take out the cork. But, as with Andre's, most occultists and conspiracy theorists didn't get Echo's joke either. So, really what Martin is expressing here is he, I think, sums up very well at the end of his essay, where he says, It is an imaginative work for what has been called its irreducible strangeness. It is unequaled for playfulness and creativity and functions in an apophatic space. By refusing to be what the reader wants it to be, i.e. an esoteric mystery to be solved, or into which one might hope to be initiated. Finally, the chemical wedding, by refusing to lead readers into the experience they desire, nevertheless leads them into the experience they need, their very desire indicating a disorder of the soul. The chemical wedding of Christian Rosenkreutz, then, is the esoteric text that is, at one and the same time, the antidote to esoteric texts. It provides the remedy by affecting the nature of the disease, the literary equivalent of a Paracelsian medicine in which like is used to cure like. So, again, that's all from Michael Martin's essay from the introduction to this new edition of The Chemical Wedding of Christian Rosenkreuz, which I highly recommend simply for Martin's insights. The second essay is equally insightful, where he discusses the idea of marriage in an esoteric sense. Um, and it's very interesting, to say the least. And now it's a pleasure to have someone who you listeners already know if you are a regular of this podcast. Uh, I say welcome to Ursula, Ursula Cherny, who is joining me again today for this Ex Libris edition. Hello, Ursula. Hello. Thanks for having me again. <laughs> well, great to have you. Great to have you. Third time on Ex Libris and um, also this great episode from Berlin on our culture that you made for us because you were there and you did all the interviews. That was great. Thank you again. You're welcome. It was a pleasure, really. Yeah, it was. It was. Today we talk about a really interesting book and an exciting book and um, uh, from somebody who was already a guest on this show. And I'm happy to make 
with his approval, the announcement today that he will be soon again back on the show because Frater Acker, who we are talking here about, thanks to you, Ursula, we were the only podcasts where he was on so far. He never did any podcast interview before the one he did for us. And he's going with his new book, which will be out in a month or to uh, again be a guest on on the Thought Service podcast. I'm looking forward to that. And I think that's one good reason to do that book, Holy Damon, that he wrote, uh, I think, two years ago. Is that right? Yes, I think so. Yes. Mm -hmm. And um, so this time, this time we're going to speak about this book before we will speak about his new book, when he will be back on the podcast. I was already too long. Over to you, Holy Damon, Ursula. What is it all about and what did you find in that very interesting book? Well, um, first to say, I was simply blown away by this book because there is some material out there. We all know the traditional sources like Lieber Samek, like um, the Book of Abermelin. Some of us have attempted to recreate those rituals. Um, what, what I haven't found yet is a workable solution for modern days, you know, because... Um, I don't think any of us is really in the position to withdraw him or herself for like six to 18 months in complete isolation, basically, what would be required theoretically. And um, so I, I really like um, Frater Acher's approach to this whole um, issue. Like he, so uh, just let's start um, from the very beginning. He, the, the whole book is divided into three basic parts. The first part is about history, um, where he tries to explain the concept of the holy diamond or the holy guardian angel within different traditions, like um, ancient Greeks, Zoroastrian tradition, and among the Chaldeans, the so-called Chaldeans. The second part is basically a series of diary entries, very, very personal ones from his own encounter, from his journey to his holy guardian angel, to this encounter with it, with it um, which took place back in 2010. And he offers us these diary entries as a link in a chain, like um, just to have an idea not to recreate his process, but to have an idea how it can be done. And the third part is, um, is a wonderful um, compilation of practice where he uses his essay he published back in, I think, 2009 online. It was called um, The Everyday Path to Your Holy Guardian Angel. That was the starting point of this whole book, actually. It was on his side through magic, I guess. Yeah. Yes, exactly, exactly. Mm -hmm. And um, during the writing process of this essay, he realized how much effort it took in terms of mundane lives and how we have to behave and how we have to change in our mundane existence in order to achieve this communion and how little magic it actually takes. Mm -hmm. And so he, he tried to, um, to put together different practices which do not require a lot of um, outer dressing, basically almost nothing at all, but which are highly effective nevertheless, or maybe because of that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So um, he started out this 
his journey with a four weeks retreat, an intense Saturn retreat, where he did his magical workings. He deprived himself of sleep. He isolated himself. He fasted. And this whole process of four weeks culminated in the so-called ritus thanatos, which means being buried alive. Mm -hmm. So um, the magician communed with Saturn forces and um, he, he, he put his whole heart in this pro in, into this process. And what came out is a very personal account where he even includes his relationship to his wife and to his dog. Mm -hmm. And he describes the whole process in a very, very poetic, beautiful language. Very personal style, but never distracting. So it, it was for me quite fascinating how he balances this. For me personally, it also had, a, a, in, in parts of it, it, the whole book had a, um, an idea of crossing the abyss. Maybe I'm mistaken. Mm -hmm. But several descriptions, several um, expressions he used pointed, for me at least, to the idea of crossing the abyss. And maybe he accomplished both at the same time, I don't know. He doesn't yeah. explicitly tell this, but but it was pretty fascinating, this whole journey. Because probably, yeah, usually we say that meeting the holy guardian angel and crossing the abyss is two steps one after the other. And if you say yeah. he, he basically does that at the same time, that's a very interesting approach. He doesn't say it. He doesn't say it. But for me, yeah, he it, alluded it, it, it read, yeah. read yeah. like that. Yeah, mm -hmm. Like mm -hmm. he, he broke down um, the, the uh, whole process into four stages, you know. And right. um, the first stage is about, like he breaks down the whole practice of it into four different parts. The first is um, trust. The second um, is called joy. The third is called darkness. And the fourth is called encounter. And um, he compares the whole journey to an alchemical process, which ultimately has to be repeated in cycles over and over again. He describes, like, he describes the first cycle of it. But he also points out that we are um, called to repeat it again because we have... I mean, you don't have to, but we aim for perfection. We aim to, to be the best versions of ourselves. So this is kind of a spiraling journey which never comes to an end. Which is also interesting, which is also different from other versions of that very path regarding the Holy Guardian Angel that we know, isn't it? Totally. And in many traditions, as, as far as I'm aware of, this communion with the Holy Guardian Angel is pointed out as something that you have to aim for, like something that's, that's about power, that's about um, you need to accomplish this because then you have great whatever. Mm -hmm. He turns the whole concept the other way around because he says um, it's, not, it's just one step because it's about handling power. It's not about clinging to power. It's not about personal power, but it's about power which can be contained in a vessel, which is obviously the magician. Yeah. And this process is about perfecting or preparing the vessel for this kind of power and handling the power, which is um, 
which is in a greater service. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it's it's definitely a different concept from what many magicians on, on this way have, have been um, proposing. Definitely sounds like it, yes. yes. Do you know, I mean, maybe this is a, it's a very superficial question because maybe it doesn't mean anything, but um, do you know why he calls it specifically the Holy Daemon and not the more usual term Holy Garden Angel? Or what does the, the Daemon stand for for him? Does he expl- exp- uh, explain that to us? Well, throughout the whole book, he uses this term because he tries to um, to explain where it comes from, like from the Chaldeans, from the Zoroastrian tradition, mm-hmm. from the ancient Greeks. He um, he opens up the whole bunch of philosophy of Greek philosophy in a very very clear language, in a very concise language. I I was really ad- admiring this because yeah. it's you know we occultists. We certainly know where these things come from, but put these things into terms where each of us can understand it is for me a kind of an art, basically. Absolutely. And I think that's exactly what makes him so special. And I would also like our audience to remember to go on to that site that you mentioned before, the theomagica.com, because also there you find articles and blog entries. Uh, you almost hesitate to call them blog entries because they're yeah. so deep and so interesting. And, wonderful. and as you say, they are always, you understand them in clear language. It's, Absolutely. it's, it's, it's very interesting. Absolutely. It's, it's fascinating. And yeah. what maybe just, um, just as a side note, all those techniques sure. in, um, in, in the third part of the book in practice, are very simple but highly effective ones, like w- specific workings with candles, like building up tension in the body and then letting it go and finding a balance in between, um, or testing oneself, just asking oneself certain questions about the process of creation and destruction. How, where do I stand in, in terms of these polarities? So what, what he offers is workable for a modern day magician who is involved in normal day work in life in family stuff in in whatever is coming up and i i guess most of us have to deal with some of that and that is very modern because i think that's a bit the problem of a lot of the books and i'm not talking about the old books really but even many of the contemporary books on magic they seem to be made for people who live alone in a hut in the forest exactly. uh, and and not for and i know i mean uh, uh Frater Acker, he is a person who is in day-to-day life also very active in, the, in as a professional so um that is that is fascinating that he found a way to do that that's great uh, yeah it's, it's absolutely great it's well, uh, for me personally it's one of the best books on um, on the Holy Guardian Angel, or the best uh, compilations I've ever read. Mm-hmm. I've read quite a f- quite a few, basically everything I could get my hands on, and this stands out for me very very much. That's great, and I also yeah. personally like the, the the name Diamond very much because it's genius in Latin actually. Yes, and, uh, and your genius, your personal genius, uh, and it's so often misconceived by the word diamond as we use it 
because we are influenced by since the Middle Ages by the church who who used that word for exactly. something else. And, exactly. And so that's really fascinating. Yes. Unfortunately, unfortunately, I must say that um, the book, the printed book, and you're a lucky uh, one because you still have the printed book, which was <laughs> in, initially published by um, Scarlet Imprint. And it's as usual when they do a book, it's a beautiful book. Absolutely. Um, <laughs> I think it is out of print at the moment. They sell it on Amazon at almost 400 euros. At the moment, so that's that's that, but it shows you how how search after this. But but there is now an ebook version that can be that can be bought uh, for Kindle. So at least you have no excuse, dear audience, not to get that book. It's really a good one, and um, follow Ursula's advice because I think a she's always right, and b um, uh, it is really a good book. Well, Ursula, thank you so much for this, and. Um, you're welcome. Speak again next time, hopefully. And um, it's Thanks. always a pleasure to have you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Chapter 4 It is a pleasure for me to have here with me today Alistair Lees. Alistair, who has recently published a wonderful book, a big book, a great book called English Illuminati with Louis Masonic. And this book is talking about the Illuminati as it should talk about that topic. Uh, hello, good afternoon, Alistair. It's great to have you here on Toth Hermes. Yes, Rudolf, thank you for inviting me. Well, it's um, a pleasure. So I, I, like many of your uh, audience, will have been involved in the occult and studying the occult since I was 16 years old. Oh, that's uh, great. <laughs> and uh, I suppose my, my inner skill was I, I learned to hold girls' hands by reading their palms and uh, have been a palmist, <laughs> palmist for many years. I don't do it so much nowadays. I'm a bit, bit too old to do that. So I, I, I've been very interested in the occult and uh, I knew more about the occult uh, before I ever became a Freemason. Um, and then when I was a Freemason, I, I really wasn't getting any answers from anybody. So found my home in the SRIA, which is the uh, Rosicrucian Society for Freemasons. Yes. And here I found my home. And um, it, it's a place where a lot of people who see so much in the symbols uh, out there. And um, I realized that I'd been reading about the SRIA and some of their material for years. And I was a, a Rosicrucian. I think Rosicrucians are people that really um, have an opinion on the principles of nature and science and don't mind sharing that opinion. Exactly. And it's good that you share it. Um, <laughs> absolutely. So, that, well, so that's a little bit about me. Um, as far as this book is concerned, it, it's several different books in one. Um, all I wanted to do originally was to produce a history of the Illuminati that wasn't tainted by this 300-year-old fake news story that we get from the A. Burrell and uh, Robinson. And that's the thing that everybody drums out. And when yes. I started the book, that's all there was. Mm -hmm. And um, 
we catalogued the library of the High Council of the, of the SRIA, and blow me down, I found this amazing handwritten history of the Illuminati by William Wynne Westcott, who was uh, the leader, the Supreme Magus, of not only the SRI, but many other orders. So this was a serious find, and nobody had seen it, and it was hidden away with all the special rituals and books. You know, it wasn't for general public, so... Mm-hmm. That was a bit of a mystery and, and a strange thing for me. And, but anyway, I was determined that the contents were fabulously unbiased, interesting history of the Illuminati written by the Illuminati. Mm-hmm. So there I went off on my mission. Now, it's plain, boring, type textbook. <laughs> and uh, as I was, I, I got a friend to transcribe it, which was really lucky of me. And it looked so boring. I always thought, well, if I'm going to make it into a book, I need some pictures. So I added pictures. But at the beginning of my story, there was not one single picture of the Illuminati available. Okay. And at, and at the end of it, I've ended up with 250 uh, different images from different places. Um that are relevant to the story because it then turned out that this history was part of a package that was going to be used to introduce the Illuminati into Great Britain and its independences in 1902. Mm -hmm. Um, And the story just got more exciting because Pappas uh, who is the famous Martinist from Paris. Yes, yes. He did the introduction. He wrote Westcott not only once, but twice. And I explain in the letter, in the book, why Pappas wrote twice. Mm-hmm. And so suddenly here I am finding letters written by Pappas to Westcott, introducing someone called Royce and saying, I'm an Illuminati. This is Papa saying, I'm an Illuminati. Westcott, do you want to be one? And I'm thinking, this is amazing. Yes. Well, was this anything that was already known that uh, Papus was in touch with Westcott in general? Is this something that is common knowledge? I I wasn't aware of that. I don't think it was. I think this is quite a, you know, um, a friend who helped me with the book, he said, Alistair, phoning you up while you were writing the book was like phoning up somebody looking through um, the Ark of the Covenant. And he was sort of putting to one side this document and this chalice here because I was coming up with so many revelations and surprises and half of them have been cut out of the book because they wander off into so many different directions mm-hmm. about what was going on in 1902 and the story of Pappas alone is mind-blowing. Absolutely. Interesting. Mind-blowing. Yeah, interesting. interesting. Um, so anyway, um, clearly uh, Royce was interested and um, very quickly he had an arrangement and um, I read it somewhere, but the SRIA became um, linked to and associated with the revived Illuminati. Now, um, I'm not going to go into the details of who this revived Illuminati are here necessarily, because mm-hmm. it's in the book. Yeah. But people should go do and get the book exactly. <laughs> he, he, it was revived in 1880 in Bavaria. Um, the guy got his Freemasonry in London. Mm-hmm. As a journalist, he went back to Berlin. And I called it from that point on Prussian Illuminati because in 
Germany in those days, you could generalize and say Bavaria was mostly Catholic and Prussia was mostly, um, well, you'd say Luther, but in our words, sort of, um, it was anti-Catholic in many respects. So it was extraordinary that uh, this revived Illuminati uh, was being coming out of Prussia and Berlin was the capital then. Mm-hmm. Um, but Pappas had a hidden agenda. Royce had a hidden agenda. Westcott had a hidden agenda. And these stories are all weaved into my finding the English Illuminati. Um, So let's, the book contains not only four sets of rituals, I'll explain those in a little bit more detail, the ordinances for launching it, the rules for launching it, um, a history to explain all about the organization and something else that has never been published in English before. And that's the mysteries of the Illuminati. Okay. So this chap wrote, um, a hist- a mysteries of the Illuminati first, um, in 1894. And then four years later wrote the history of the Illuminati, which is strange, Yeah. but the book was going to be called Grand Lodge Wars because <laughs> what I didn't realize and what nobody probably realizes unless you're an OTO historian mm-hmm. is that the Illuminati was wrestled away from Royce and the Prussians in Berlin by the Dresden Illuminati and a new character was introduced to the story who I researched and um, uh, there was a fight between Royce, uh, this guy Pappas and Westcott and it, it, it all got dirty and seedy and was all done in the best possible taste but um, there was some amazing stuff going on and what really Royce wanted was 96 degrees right he wanted to become a 96 degree Freemasonry and Pappas said that he had that that he had the 96 degree Freemasonry, mm-hmm. but Pappas hadn't. He made a huge mistake and launched to his Paris audience, I got 96 degrees, when in fact he got the Swedenborg six degrees. Okay, okay. Now this is a complete new revelation. Nobody knows what's going on. But the relevance of it all is these grades and degrees and people with egos and battles and disagreements were all about who's going to have the most degrees Um, And I honestly believe, as the OTO does, that what Royce was trying to do was to produce one Grand Lodge that you subscribe to and you could get every degree in it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And Freemasons would love that idea because most of us are members of goodness knows how many different Grand Lodges (laughs) and goodness knows how many. And you can't get all the degrees in any one order. And I think that's what was behind Royce's plan. He wanted to have uh, the 96 degrees of something called the ancient and accepted right. Right. Um, And this had 96 degrees. Um, And this wasn't from any of the people I've mentioned. This had to come from John Yarker. And so my book deals now with another new character. Exactly. And was it not called the ancient and, uh, um, the ancient right. and, uh, yes, so exactly, exactly. Yes. <laughs> and of course the ancient and primitive right from John Yarker contained the, the ostracized Sir New right, which mm-hmm. was a, a New York thing. And in America, American Freemasons in the ancient accepted right were fighting each other over uh, north and south jurisdictions, right. Sir New Rights and ancient. And all that spilled into this 1902 bubble. 
Mm-hmm. And um, it needed some explaining. I wanted the book to appeal to people who just wanted to read the story, but get a bit in more, more involved. So the last chapter of the book, chapter six, mm-hmm. goes into detail. Who is Westcott? Who is Pappas? Who is John Yarker? Mm-hmm. Who is Royce? And so I've developed that so that people, you know, when they give up on the page, go, oh, who are all these people? And who are all these orders? I've given a taste of all the different memberships these people had. Some of this is completely new information that's involved, you know, quite a bit of research. And, yes. and I've had help from everybody. I mean, this, is, this isn't a solo effort. Um, a lot of people, some who want to remain anonymous, um, translated the French for me. I'm not a French speaker. Translated the German. There's a, a lovely instance where uh, a colleague who is German, living in Germany, a member of the SRIA, and it was in mother that helped translate the letter of the ancient and accepted Lodge of Instruction Mm -hmm. that Royce was a member of, which is an extraordinary thing. And it was only because uh, old German isn't used anymore and they they couldn't get a handle on some of the words in this particular letter. And so mum so mum helped out. So there you go. Even mother's helping out. (laughs) That's amazing. Um, uh, But I mean, you mentioning just only those four people uh, already shows how far this whole story got because Royce of course then the next that comes to mind would be Rudolf Steiner who also seems to have been involved at some point in this 96 degree which turned out to Dubium and Swiss Misraim later on etc so this is um, a really a, like a web somehow isn't it? Well as I got more and more involved in that web I drew back from it because you're now treading on the, 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 the toes of the OTO mm. who are who I credit a little bit, but I wanted to make sure sh- I, I, I really came back and tried to concentrate on only one or well, about three years in total in 1902 around that period. Because, yes, it uh, you know, all the people, uh, Alistair Crowley got involved, Steiner got involved, yeah, um, oh, the whole world got involved, mm-hmm. but. This period in 1902 was the, the the beginnings of all of this crossing over of orders and um. The reason I think um, Westcott stepped back was this was the most important year for him. He got his first grand office. He became a United Grand Lodge officer that yes. year, a past mm-hmm. grand, and I think that was significant. Um, but just while I remember it, and sorry to digress slightly, one of the things that came out in my reading of this, the fake news said what a terrible organization the Illuminati were. Right. And I use mathematics and I subtracted from all that fake news, the fake news that people talk about Freemasonry, the fake news that people talk about uh, occult orders, the fake news that people talk about all these things. I subtracted all those things away from what was said about the Illuminati. And the funny thing that's left is educating women and children. Mm -hmm. This Illuminati, right from the beginning, had the object of including women in its order. And of course, in 1776, there was no esoteric order for women at all. This was going to be the first. And so, I, so we are now talking about the original Bavarian Illuminati. The Bavarian Illuminati was going to be the first. And so I was very interested in looking and scouring through all these 1902 
Prussian Illuminati documents to see how involved women were going to be. And yes, they were going to be involved. Mm-hmm. Um, and it is written into the constitutions. And I've highlighted it in a several places. But of course, by this time in 1902, and the reason Royce would have chosen Westcott for the Illuminati is Westcott was the man that was behind the Golden Dawn the second most esoteric order for women that there ever was. Right. The Theosophical Society being first. Mm -hmm. But the Theosophical Society was on really rocky ground and was fading fast. The Golden Dawn, well, that's another story. And and I have a whole book. Book two is all about the amazing uh, organization behind the Golden Dawn and changing nothing but just improving our view of it Mm -hmm. but the important thing was this illuminati order was destined to be the highest esoteric order for women because uh, women generally haven't got many of apart from um annie besant's three degrees yes now this was going to be um, an order to compete with annie besant Mm -hmm. um and her order so it was, um, yeah, uh, you could tell I got very interested and very involved. And there's so much more to, for people to, to search and find when, themselves. Yeah, yeah. And I, I hope that this second book that you just mentioned also will come out soon, because that sounds like also an interesting, not, not sequel maybe, but uh, a continued information on the same period and the same subject, right? Well, that's what I'm going to try and do. Keep it very uh, tight in time scale, and um, it won't change people's. Um, won't. I'm not contradicting anything that's ever been said, but there's a whole lot of new information. If you slot in like right. extra pieces to a jigsaw, suddenly you've got a completely different picture. Of course, and it's of course. Yeah. So after that, that's the teaser. But you'll also notice from the book. I was uh, coming back to the people that collaborated and helped me. Mm-hmm. I've given all the links and the information where people can go and access this material for right. themselves. Right. And encourage, I hope, people that I started this journey being no more than a, a, an interested party with an esoteric background and seem to become an expert, if you like, um, by just being sucked in by all these stories and, and they are so compelling and you can't stop yourself. Yeah, no, it is, it is amazing. And also I must say, speaking about the book itself, I mean, it's also a beautiful book. It's a quite a big format, but not too thick. It's heavy. It's a nice heavy paper because there are a lot of those illustrations in the original prints, like I have here in front of me a letter of, of the Grand Lodge of Germany in German, uh, in English, sorry, uh, and it's all a reprint. It, it is really an extraordinary book just as a as an object, I must say. It's, it's, a, great, it's a great thing. And uh, the content of course is, is really amazing. Could you just help our audience a little bit when we talk about Illuminati uh, just put them in time so we're talking about the Bavarian Illuminati first which is 1780s basically right? Uh, 1776 was when they started it lasted for 11 years that's the Bavarian Illuminati Mm -hmm. Um, and the Prussians Prussians, when do you put them time wise? The Prussian Illuminati started in 1880 um, so nearly 100 years later um, uh, and it took him some time to get it launched he really got going in 1890s right. when he, um, Royce really got I think he was involved in a study group 
in Bavaria, and this was the interesting thing, there is no such thing as an ancient accepted rights study group. They don't have them. Right. But there was one in Bavaria, which was extraordinary uh, find. Mm -hmm. um, and of course, he, you know, Royce was fighting his battles in Prussia uh, uh, in between Berlin and Dresden when he pounced on Pappas. Pappas was a ready audience straight away. Pappas and Westcott were involved with the, the, the Martinist organization. Pappas was trying to make right. Westcott the head of the Martinists in England mm -hmm. or Great Britain. It wasn't England in those days. Yes. Um, and, uh, you know, so the whole picture changes. I mean, there, you can have prequels and sequels and all kinds of things uh, to this story. Um, I just wanted, as a first book, to have a pretty book with lots of interesting pictures, lots of interesting words. And really, you know, I think this book is relevant today because it's – it's talking about real things that people have only thought about. And here is, you know, Swedenborg right letterheaded paper, the, the Society of Eight, you know, Papa sitting in his headquarters, right. um, which turned out to be the place where the, the special library was. Mm -hmm. And the chance that Pappas was working Freemasonry in that very building and leading into it and pictures of the, you know, um, it's just, I hope, going to awaken some interest that will lead to something else. Well, I'm sure it will uh, because it's, and I really, I really am very happy that we can speak about this today because it's really an important book. Um, I was going to ask you, why do you think this fake news that you mentioned has appeared? Why did the Illuminati, this name, the Illuminati, and or originally the Bavarians, uh, um, why did they create such an interest which then turned completely backwards into this fake news that we find everywhere today? What's your theory on, theory on that? People love mysteries um i have a spanish wife and she says to me when i go to a masonic meeting oh off to uh, rape virgins and eat babies <laughs> yeah 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 and, and, yeah and this is the spanish to uh, culture mm. that they still think people do that if there was one baby eaten by a Freemason, we'd have heard about it in the last yeah, 300 years. So. Um, but people, it's funny, it's amusing. People love the mystery. Mm. And um, I stopped in a station recently giving a talk. A woman said, what are you doing? Illuminati book. She said, oh, my son's a member of the billionaire Illuminati cast. He was at their, one of their dinners the other day. Um, <laughs> people don't know what the Illuminati was all about. I mean, it's all in the word. Yeah. And in their secret sign, you know, yes. blinded by the light, there is too much light for everybody to understand everything. So just concentrate on certain things, develop yourself, develop what you're interested in, and you'll find your way. Otherwise, you'll just be blinded by everything that's going on. And um, the, the different degrees they used, I mean, the Minerva degree that the Illuminati used is brilliant. It would... Yes. It would work in Freemasonry today anywhere. And it's yeah. a lovely understanding method going forward. Um, you know, the CBCS, which is the big European thing at the moment, was the degree that came out of the Scottish Knight of theirs. Mm -hmm. um, and, and that was a degree, as you see in the book, you know, Pappas was offered to be Grand Master of that. Right. Get rid of Martinism because the CBCS is the original source of Martinism. Mm -hmm. 
they said. They said, um, yeah. You know, uh, it just goes on. Yeah. So, yeah, Alistair, this was just great because I don't want to go any further because people, as you, we said before, they should now get the book and really dig themselves into it. It's not only worth it, it is important, I think, because especially when you want to know more about the stuff you We, some of us, many of us do Freemasons, um, people working in other occult uh, societies because they have all grown out of that, of that rich heritage in the late 19th century. And this is part of it. And it is, it is a great part of that web that, that you created here. Thank you so much. And thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you, Rudolf, for inviting me. Thank you. Okay, dear friends and listeners. That was episode four of the Thoth Hermes podcast, season four, our January 2020 Ex Libris edition. I hope you enjoyed. We are presenting the following books to you. The Hermetic Science of Transformation by Giuliano Kremertz, published by Inner Traditions. The Chemical Wedding of Christian Rosenkreutz, The Ezekiel Foxcroft translation revised and with new essays by Michael Martin, published by Angelico Press. Holy Diamond by Frater Acker, published by Scarlet Imprint. And finally, English Illuminati by Alastair Lees, published by Louis Masonic. Next week, We will be back with a new episode, and this time my interview guest will be American author, teacher, consultant and sorcerer Jason Miller. We will talk about his approach to magic, which he calls strategic sorcery. I think this will be a very interesting discovery to make. So, I thank you all for having listened to this episode this week. And I'm looking forward to have you back next time, next Sunday, hopefully already. For now, I'm leaving you, saying, take care, stay tuned, hear you soon. <laughs>